but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome to episode 96 of The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is our post-US Open wrap show. We could have done it last night, which would have been Monday, but we kind of needed a, a personal day to just sit at home and not do anything. Yeah, we well, we were in Rochester at my family's house uh, over the weekend. From Friday to Sunday, we watched both finals in the garage. Mm -hmm. Very high-tech. Managed to hook up a TV in the garage so we could socialize and watch tennis. Uh, but there was lots of eating and drinking involved, and uh, it was just a lot. So we needed the personal day. Your winners are Rafael Nadal, 16th Grand Slam title, and the big surprise, Miss Sloane Stevens <laughs> is a Grand Man, Slam champion. Life comes at you fast, doesn't it? It sure does, and it came at me real fast. <laughs> and I would like to officially <laughs> offer an apology to all the listeners and to you. And to Sloane, uh -huh. because, for one, I picked Venus to win, which was looking pretty good at 4, 5, 30 all in that third set against Sloane. Yeah. However, earlier in the week, last week, I also said to you privately that I just don't see Sloane as a slam champion. You're like, well, you know, Sloane looks pretty dangerous. <laughs> and I laughed at it so preposterously. <laughs> It didn't even occur to me. And of course, as it starts lining up that it's coming to be Sloan and Venus, and then the day of the match, I just had this feeling. I woke up. You did. You texted me. Right away. Earlier. Mm -hmm. I woke up, went to take the dog out, opened the door. It's pouring rain. One thing about this new place we're at, you can't tell when it's raining outside. It's like, great. I have 10 minutes to take the dog out before I have to go to work, and I have to somehow get him to do his business in torrential downpour. That did not work. Mm -hmm. And so it's like the writing is absolutely on the wall. Like, first I put my foot <laughs> in my mouth, I bad talk Sloan, and now she's going to beat Venus. And not only did she beat Venus, she beat Venus in heartbreaking fashion. Really? So I don't know if an apology is in order. I think just a little eating of crow would suffice. Mm. And you didn't even give me the opportunity to call you out. You just went, went out and admitted it. Yeah, this was a preemptive strike. And I think what you said was that Sloane doesn't have a Grand Slam winning game. Yeah, and I um, said that she, at best, is probably a perennial quarterfinalist. <laughs> wow. Or semifinalist. Not even a semifinalist. Like, I just didn't think she had the weapons mm -hmm. to push through and win seven matches, let alone in this tournament. Right. When fine... She's made back-to-back semifinals leading into the U.S. Open, but she hadn't played in tennis for over a year. Right. Up I until that point. I was, I would say, not a Sloan skeptic, but I saw her in that semifinal in Cincinnati, and she didn't look like she had a lot to give against Halep. She had played so much tennis over those few weeks, and she just seemed wiped out. And I thought, she's only been back for a little while, is she going to be able to sustain in New York if, if it gets down to that? Especially after a long match against Venus. But she looked so fresh after every single match. And I think, of course, the day rest helps everybody. But, man, to be young again, 
It was more than that for me. It was just I just didn't think she had the game, mm. which I was totally wrong. I thought of her more as a, a counterpuncher, somebody who was a retriever. I didn't know she had that much power well, when she needed it. To be fair, there was a lot of counterpunching in well, her game. Sure, but mm. she does have a reserve of power if she needs it. I didn't know her game was that complete. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And from start to finish at the Open, beating Vinci, Sibolkova, Barty, Gurgis, who was one of the hottest players on tour all summer, mm-hmm. Sevastova, Venus, and then Keys in the final. That's quite the lineup. It is. And because you have a few streaking players who've had good results lately in Barty and Gurgis, you have a former Grand Slam finalist in Sibolkova and Vinci. And then you have just top-tier competition in Venus and Madison. I thought I bookmarked that third-round match against Barty as something to watch. Uh, The outcome I was unsure of. And Sloane just handled it. And just continued to handle it like she has been doing all summer. What we witnessed in this tournament was the coming of age of Sloane Stevens. Mm -hmm. The maturing, the evolving, the evolution of Sloane Stevens. One of the things that we heard time and time again throughout the course of the two weeks was probably mostly from Chris Everett, but a lot of the commentators (laughs) kept saying, I wish she would show more emotion on court. I wish she would be more emotive. And that's something that we noticed in person in Cincinnati, Mm -hmm. that even when she wasn't playing well against Simona Halep, you you couldn't really tell what was going on in the match because of her even keel disposition. And to be honest, I haven't paid that close of attention to Sloan throughout her career to tell if that's something that's been the case all along. But lo and behold, she's a Grand Slam champion now, and that's looked at as a positive, right? Mm -hmm. That in those tense, crazy moments of matches, she's able to keep it together and not get too flustered. So now what people were saying is something that's holding her back is now something that's propelling her Mm -hmm. forward, which, which just shows you perfectly how these narratives are scripted to fit personal agendas, right? Right. Well, and and how commentators like us even can misread signals based on what we want to see or what we think we see. And in tennis commentary, the, the actors are so conflicted on a professional level that they're seeing exactly what they want to see. Chris Everett has known Madison Keys for a long time. They go way back. Chris Everett has relationships with players through the Everett Academy. So that, of course, colors the way that she sees tennis and commentates on it. I'm glad that you mentioned this is kind of a coming of age of Sloan because one thing that I was struck by was the maturity of her play. Not not, not to say anything about her maturity off the court or how she conducted herself, but her composure in matches the way that she played tennis was mature and professional and shrewd even because as i was watching the earlier rounds of the tournament and against venus i'm thinking you know this is a lot of counter punching a less charitable commentator would say pushing even (laughs) i'm not gonna go that far but i know that the the power that sloan has that she possesses and that she used very sporadically she was content to to grind in a lot of these points. But it turns out that it was working. She knew exactly what to do against Venus. And that's what I mean about the maturity. It turns out that she has time 
in spades on a tennis court. Because in spots where players would look rushed, Sloane Stevens looked like she's almost slow. Mm-hmm. Like she is lightning fast, but doesn't even look it. No. And that 30-all point at 4-5 in the third set against Venus, you could almost see that backhand up the line coming. Mm-hmm. You, ju- you just felt it coming. And from that point forward, Venus being two points away from the final, and from that point onward, it just got worse for Venus in terms of the trickery and the magic that right. Sloane Stevens right. was able to call upon. <laughs> There was, she also rushed to the net to retrieve a a drop shot, a really well-placed drop shot by Venus, and hit a really nifty volley cross-court. I don't remember what point it was on, but that was like, god damn it. There was also some (laughs) ball that she just got back, hit a defensive lob that turned into a winner. At Mm. that point, you're just like, there's just nothing that can be done. Yeah, because in that match against Venus, the first two sets were just kind of bad. Venus was not there in the first set. She upped her game a lot in the second, and Sloan was showing signs of nervousness, but Venus was playing really well. And the momentum was with Venus in that third set, and she was so close, but it's just everything that she did, Sloan had an answer for. And it was the versatility of her game that really struck me in that moment. It was it was not just retrieving, It was that she could unleash, like you said, that down-the-line backhand when she needed to, with pace. Venus didn't lose the backhand of that third set. You can make the argument that she lost the match at the the front end of that third set. That after winning Mm -hmm. the second set, 6-love, there was no way she could have gone down a break right away. That that just put her in the back foot one more time in this tournament, like she had against Kvitova, which she was able to overcome. But this time against Stevens, it just wasn't to be. So Sloan gets to the final, where she plays Madison Keys, who is on the back of the match of her life. Because Basically, yeah. she completely annihilated Coco Bangaway. <laughs> I mean, it was for a match to follow after Venus losing, as we are Venus fans, and we were completely destroyed by that match. Yeah, absolutely, right? yeah completely dispirited that was some kind of tonic a little bit of a tonic (laughs) so much so that we were contemplating inducting madison into the body serve hall of fame we have an induction coming today we do but it will not be madison perhaps a if madison had won the tournament then maybe we would have Mm. but also it kind of feels a little bit petty unnecessarily on our part to induct another player for beating Coco. Because our first yeah. <laughs> inauguree was... Uh, uh, Magdalena Rybarakova. Yes, who for... beat Sloan. Ooh, wow. Who beat uh, Coco at Wimbledon. But yeah, so it, it won't be Madison. It'll be somebody else you'll have to keep listening to find out. Mm-hmm. And so Madison gets to this final, and she's the more accomplished player. She's the player who has more weapons, more visible weapons than Sloan. You think, but for what could be a nagging injury that she picked up in the second set of that semifinal, she seemed to be the the favorite. To my mind, the mm-hmm. almost big favorite. That's what that, I thought. In that final. I, I thought she was going to win. I thought it was going to be competitive. But what she showed against Vesnina, then Svitolina, which was one of my highlights of the entire tournament, the match against Svitolina, 
was obviously really tough. She's having an amazing year, and it was such a showcase for Svitolina's athleticism and why she's been so successful this year, and Madison pulled that out. Then, when we get to Colleen, she dominated Colleen, and then, as she's beating her thoroughly, goes off court for this medical timeout. And it... Up a double break in that second set. And so... When I find out what it's for, and when she comes back on the court and she looks fine, I'm like, oh, wow. This is cunning and smart. She knows she's going to be in the final. She feels she may have picked up a small injury, and she's trying to mitigate that now because she wants to go out and win that final. And so, to me, I was like, okay, you know what? Madison's going to win this tournament. That was a professional, if a little, you know, maybe the not the most upstanding way of going about it. But I'm like, Madison's going to win. She's looking to the final now. And of course she didn't. It was the second <laughs> right. consecutive, the second consecutive WT slam final where the second set ended in a, a bagel. Venus was on the receiving end of mm-hmm. a 6-4, was it 7-5-6 love? I, I believe so, yeah. And then at the US Open, it was 6-3-6 love, Sloan over Madison. And just not competitive at all. Sloan made six unforced errors the entire match. As much as Madison was unable to find the court and hit the ball over the net, Sloan was just as consistent and good in the ways that aren't immediately visible to the eye. Right, right. Like, we don't often see speed as a weapon, but it is. But speed coupled with that sort of consistency and the power when she needs it, And when you're retrieving so many balls to the point where the point ends with your opponent making an error, that's not always reflective in a positive way for you. Right. And maybe the stats don't look great overall, right? But Sloan won that match. And again, in a first-time slam final, she didn't look for one minute to be overcome by nerves. And when she... I mean, it was just such a complete performance on court, and then off court, when she's doing her interviews with Tom Rinaldi, we'll get to him later on. Mm. <laughs> it was, this was her moment in time. I think of sports so much through the lens of Whitney Houston's one moment in time. <laughs> <laughs> and I often wonder what it's like to be that good at something where in that one moment you're racing with destiny and you've achieved and become all that you can be, right? <laughs> to know what that level of greatness feels mm-hmm. like. And that that's what Madison... That's what Sloan was in that final, on the court and then afterward. Because every note she hit was pitch perfect. Be it a rally ball, a serve, answering a question, being entirely gracious and sweet to Madison, and then giving an A-plus champions press conference Mm -hmm. afterward. I mean... Aside from the tennis, I know we're not supposed to talk about the handshakes and the embraces at the net, but I was moved. I was so pressed that Sloan beat Venus and Madison, I was, but I was so moved by the gesture, by their embrace at the net, by their obvious respect and admiration for each other. The fact that Sloan went over and sat with Madison while they were waiting for the trophy presentation. You know, I had which never not, seen that before. I, <laughs> I have never seen that before. Right. And thank you. Thank you for Twitter, because they pulled up all the recent times that that has happened. Obviously, Venus and Serena always sit next to each other, but 
Vinci and Panetta and, and many, many other opponents do that. But uh, there was obviously so much respect between the two. And Madison, you know, she had a really bad day at the office, but she didn't seem like this is going to, to devastate her in years to come. You know, she didn't have a great day, but she knows that she's talented and that she can get to these opportunities. So let's put a lid on the women's final. Okay. Congrats, Sloane Stevens. Overall, though, the the final didn't live up to the general quality of the matches that we saw mm-hmm. throughout. Again. Again, like in Cincinnati, like but in diff- Toronto. Different this time, though, because we had so many top seats fall by the wayside. But everybody just came and put their hand up to write their own old story this tournament. Absolutely. Patrick Avedova. Wow. The match of the tournament for me. Like, where do you even start with Petra? Coming back from this horrifying injury from the attack in her home, won Birmingham, did, you know, okay in other tournaments, wasn't really winning back-to-back matches very much. But she comes into this U.S. Open looking like her old self. And really, like, she's never played at the Open before. Her match against Muguruza, I can't remember if we... Had we recorded when that happened? Who cares? Okay. In the back half of that match, dominated Muguruza, who is the player who has been dictating this summer. And then, like you said, the match against Venus in the quarterfinals was unbelievable. You expect an exciting match from these two, and they really delivered. They've only ever played three set matches. If you recall, back in 2014, third round Wimbledon, they played one of the matches of the year in that tournament, Mm -hmm. where Venus, at the start of her comeback, after she was depleted by Sjogren Syndrome, that was really the first time when you saw Venus play just a stunning level of tennis again. Mm -hmm. And it was unfortunate that she had to play it in the third round. Now she has a better ranking She's able to play these matches later on in tournaments, right. thankfully. But those two, it just seems every time they play, the combination of the quality of their games, their personhoods, <laughs> mm-hmm. everything about the two of them just gel to create magic. Right. I mean, they bring it against each other. They bring their very best. I was remembering in 2014, Petra made it to the final, won Wimbledon that year in an absolutely dominating performance. And it's like Venus played her into form, right? And we, you know, again, we saw Venus lose to the eventual champ here. And I was so worried that she was going to lose to Petra and Petra was going to play into form. On a personal I mean, level, I didn't need to have that ill will toward Petra because <laughs> I love Petra. Right. So for Petra to beat Venus twice on that kind of stage in that kind of way, it would just have been too mm. much. I mean, it's impossible not to like her though. She was so complimentary to Venus in in what was obviously a heartbreaker for her because she had been we saw glimpses of peak Petra against Muguruza and that is a sight to behold as you all know. But Petra said you know, Venus can win the tournament in this form, and honestly, I hope she does. But again, and I can't quote you every instance here, but Venus losing to the eventual champion or somebody who goes really damn far in the tournament. Most mm-hmm. recent history, round of 16 in Toronto, losing to Svitolina. Yeah. I think the something positive to take from Venus here, I know a lot of fans are discouraged, but... Against Sloane, she really didn't have her best game. 
the serve started to work in the second and third sets, but it wasn't ideal. A lot about her game wasn't working as well as it could have. Her net game just wasn't really... It just wasn't polished like it is sometimes. Her net game hasn't been polished for years. Right. But I'm saying that Venus not at her peak was so, so, so close. So I think for me as a fan, I think that Venus has so many more opportunities moving forward. I don't disagree that she doesn't have more opportunities going forward. I disagree in your read of that situation because toward the middle and the middle part of that third set, we started to get 20 plus shot rallies on a regular basis. And that's just not a tenable position for a 37-year-old Venus Williams. Right. Not to say that Venus at 37 can't win, win big tournaments. She could have easily won the Wimbledon final had that 4-5 game gone differently mm. against Muguruza. Who knows what would have happened. At the U.S. Open, on this surface that's playing a little bit slower than some would expect against your ultimate retriever like Sloane Stevens yeah. and your retriever who has the power to back it up, Wozniacki eat your heart out. <laughs> Wow, that's, that's so, just, so wicked. But that's just not the combination that's set up for winning on Venus's part. Yeah. To be in a long match, deep in a third set, semifinal, high tension, 37 years old, playing 20 plus rallies, 20 plus shot rallies against somebody like Sloan Stevens, where you have to hit four or five winners. Yeah. Like, you need to look to end the point. And she was trying to end points. But the problem is with Sloane is she's a retriever whom you cannot hit through. You can't blast her off the court. Yeah, so it just was a bad matchup for Venus in the end, as Mm -hmm. it turned out, with Sloane having found her best. Right. Moving on to the men. Oh, already? What else you want to talk about? I don't know. Well, I guess just shout out some of the amazing things that happened on the women's side. Okay. We mentioned Venus Petra. Petra Muguruza match was just, I mean, just to watch Petra in full flight is one of the treats of the WTA in the past 10 years, in my opinion. You've said this already. Okay. I'm looking for something new. <laughs> How about Sharapova Sevastova? That's really what you want to get mm-hmm. at here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, you're, I can read you like, mm-hmm. like a see-through blanket or something. <laughs> I don't know how you want to say it. Um, you talked about well, this I on don't... the last... Did I? Podcast. I'm pretty sure this was... Had it already happened? I think so, Oh, it did. Okay, so I guess I don't really have much more to say. I'm just saying. We'll talk more about her with this whole unstoppable bullshit. Okay. Later on. On the men's side, we... How did we find ourselves here? How has Rafael Nadal won major number 16, his fourth on hard courts, third at the US Open, for all the drama about the men's draw... We got a fairly unsurprising champion, the number one player in the world. Well, the drama of the draw was on the bottom half, which didn't have anything to well, do with it. Well, it was, Nadal. but the things that were supposed to happen on the top half didn't. No. And if you want an answer to that question, the haters, and I suppose the Fed fans, and the <laughs> Nole family, and. <laughs> the Nole family. <laughs> <laughs> they will tell you that Rafa just didn't play anybody ranked inside the top 20 to win this title. And you know what? I am not about that life because what do you want to do? Do you want to go back through the history of time and check off who played who and how many top five no. seeds? You know, like we're not doing that because Federer a, has won nine majors without facing a top ten opponent. I didn't even know that. Right, well, but we're you not going. That? But you know that. But it's 
I do know that because I saw it on Twitter. But it's <laughs> it's not a useful stat in my opinion. As as a Rafa partisan, right? That that's clear. We are biased toward Rafa. It doesn't matter to me whether Federer or anyone has faced top ten, top twenty ranked players. You face who there is, who made it through. And so to me, the criticism that he didn't face any top players, he beat the person who beat Federer. Yeah. Uh, who, but, who himself was not a top 20 player. But who has won this tournament before. Mm-hmm. But how do you have a leg to stand on if you criticize someone for beating who your favorite player could not beat? Well, I guess your favorite player then wore him down that much. That okay. He was just... All right. Like, yes, I loosened the jar for you before yeah. you opened it. You the know? point <laughs> is I'm just not willing to get into this tit-for-tat back and forth of irrationality when it comes to uh-huh. dissecting these results and parsing through to favor your favorite, right? Mm-hmm. Federer wins some, Nole wins some, Rafa wins some. It's the way it is. Like if to me it's more of a more of a problem, if there is one, if Rafa limps through to the end. If he's not playing well. Right. If he plays just kind of trash tennis, <laughs> but because he's not playing anybody who can beat him at his worst and push him he's able to still walk mm-hmm. away with the title. Like, that's yeah. more of an issue for me. Rafa was playing excellent tennis. He was. By the end of this tournament. So, you know, congrats to him. And to me, it was a lot more impressive than the Roland Garros win because it's a surface that's less comfortable for him. He was playing more aggressively, which obviously suits the surface more than clay. But the serve was dialed in. Um, we talked on our, our body serve diary, just plugging that for a moment about how Rafa was retreat or returning from what like 12 feet behind the baseline mm. and the commentators were were basically laughing at him and his camp even said after that we don't want him to return from back there but that's what he likes but he was in every single service game against someone who routinely hits 135 so how can you criticize that he has aggressiveness on the return that helped him win this tournament i mean reg- <laughs> I don't know how much of the aggressiveness on the return you can gauge when you are hitting from that far back. It's not like he's blasting winners off no. the return. No, but against a big hitter, a Federer and Nadal alike will often chip. Yes. You know? So, like, that's not aggression on the return. That's getting the ball back in play, knowing that against somebody like Kevin, you're able to, to come from a neutral position off the return or even a deficit on the return and still get back and win the point okay maybe i miss i misspoke not aggression on the first ball okay but knowing that if he got it back he could start to take control in the points Mm. i i also disagree with this is not like to say you're wrong but for me the roland garros win was more impressive okay just because i felt like his level was higher Mm. and Maybe it was just a different type of level. I talk, I, I wrote about in, in that diary today that part of the what was impressive about Nadal in this tournament was that he wasn't always playing his most aggressive tennis. He was playing confident, sound, uh, consistent, picking his spots type of tennis, right? Whereas okay. I felt like he was a lot more aggressive and maybe it was just more pleasing to watch for me at the French Open than it was at the U.S. Open. Equally impressive, I would oh, say. And that's interesting because I would actually say the opposite. I felt, at least in the final, there was no there was no show about his service games, right? 
you knew he was going to hold serve. And he did so uneventfully without unnecessary grinding, I felt. I just, I liked the the aggression. He went to net 16 times and won all of those points. He's a very accomplished volleyer, which John McEnroe talks about all the time. But I think a lot of people don't realize. And there was just so much working. And even when the forehand wasn't clicking as it should have, there were so many other things to fall back on. Well, this is what we saw at the French Open. It's something that we talked about in depth after the French Open about how much he's able to rely now on his backhand Mm -hmm. to be aggressive in points and not have to rely solely on the forehand to get into offensive positions and winning positions on the court. And so now that he has the serve working, the forehand more or less working, and the backhand as the most reliable shot in his game, mm-hmm. it's it's very difficult for players without the weapons of a Noli at his best or a Federer at his best to break down Nadal in this form. All right. Have to give props to Kevin Anderson. You and Renee Denfeld on our last show both predicted that he was the one to make it out of that half. And with Sam Query's dominating performance against Misha Zverev, I was worried that that might not happen. I think that match happened after Venus Kvitova, if I recall um, correctly. I think I that think was so. the match that followed it. And I didn't stay up for that one. That was, that's the Kevin Anderson-Sam Query match. Mm-hmm. And that one was entertaining as hell. And Kevin played better than I'd ever seen him play. It's not just that he got through a weakened bottom half. He made the final in DC. He's had a resurgent spring into summer. Mm-hmm. This is something that was building to this point. And good for him. Really. Yeah, I mean, by by all accounts, he's a super nice guy. Fans talk to him on site at tournaments all the time. And obviously people love his wife, Kelsey. But I was struck by his... Generally, just like his general business-as-usual demeanor throughout the whole tournament. Like, he's just the kind of player who goes out there and does it. He's been... I mean, he hasn't been to these late stages before, but he's back from injury. He's been a pro for a long time. And in the final, he didn't seem excessively nervous. It's just that he was outplayed. The thing that impressed me most about him in the final was that... Yes, he didn't seem to have the game to beat Rafa. Mm-hmm. I think don't think anybody expected him to beat Rafa. But that sure as hell didn't stop him from trying. Right. Even when he was down that final break in the third set, he was still picking himself up, trying to make inroads on the Rafa serve. This is somebody who it seemed like he was there to make the most of his opportunity. Mm-hmm. I don't know if if he or anybody else is thinking that this was his one moment, his one shot at it. He's a little bit older. He's 31. He's 16 days older than Rafa. Mm -hmm. Perhaps he'll be able to build on this and get there again. Who knows? But he certainly wasn't overwhelmed by the moment. And even when things didn't go his way in that final, he still maintained a positive demeanor and kept coming at Rafa. And so while the scoreline, I think 6-3, 6-3, 6-4 was very one-sided, a straight-set final that never seemed in doubt. It was never boring. I agree, yeah. It was always both players played with great intent, and it made for good viewing. Mm -hmm. And Kevin, in particular, 
has to be given a lot of credit for that. And when Chris McKendry asked him that first question, he was like, you know what? I'm just going to take the mic and I'm going to give my speech. And he seized his moment. <laughs> I enjoyed that both players decided just to monologue instead of uh, ask the answer the interview questions. I see you have written here another hardcore major and GOAT debate is reignited. I'm going to, I, I'm I going to veto that, that. I do have that written there, but I don't really want to talk about Nor it. Nor do I. I just felt like I, I put it there because people are, are saying that. Yeah, we, but we, we don't need to delve We'll into talk that. about that in 2027. Or 2020. Or 2000 never. <laughs> Easy draw, so what? We, we talked about yeah, that we a already, bit. Yeah, we already went over that. Now, a little, a little note I've made here. Assuming that Mari Djokovic, Babrinka, and Nishikori all play the Australian Open, they are all likely to be seated in the 11 to 25 range. Mm. Now think about that for wow. a moment. Wow. And as of right now, Mofis is ranked 36. Mm-hmm. You have all these players that are going to be outside the top eight seeds that's just going to make for one hell of a draw. Yeah. If everybody's playing so this and could, healthy. It could mean what? third round or round of 16 matchups for the top seeds? Specifically, Mori will be the lowest ranked. Really? Yeah. He has 4,500 oh, points to defend yeah. the rest of the season. He won, what, like seven titles in the fall last Including year? Including the World Tour Finals. Mm. And so he's going to be close to around 20, which means he could be a third round opponent for one of the top seeds. <laughs> in Australia? Yeah. Where he's made the final, uh, what, five a, times? A zillion times. Yes. Yeah. So look out for that. Do we have anything else we want to add about the men's men's event? No, no, I don't think so. We talked about in our in our body serve diary certain players kind of missing an opportunity. Some players will have many many more opportunities, like Sasha Zverev. Uh, Borna Chorich took him out, but I think, I mean, Borna lost to an accomplished player, but I think he will have more opportunities as well. Someone who won't is Joe Songa, who went out very meekly to Denis Shapovalov. Uh-huh. And, I mean, there's another one. Will you will you refrain from picking Joe to win tournaments now? I can't make any promises. Mm. Let's move on to doubles. Before we get into the doubles, I want to relitigate something from years ago, and it's more prescient, is that the right word? Mm. Okay. Since Sloan is a Grand Slam winner. This whole business of I made you. Re-litigate? Yeah, because I sent you that article that was circulating today from ESPNW, I think back in 2013, Mm. after Miami. Did you read it? Did I read it, though? Did you read it? No. You did not read it? No. Okay. Sloan, I'd forgotten a lot of the the nitty-gritty of that story, but Sloan was really hurt by that whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a lot of people talking about it since and you were we were dming with our listener fabian today Mm -hmm. and we were talking about that a little bit and i i honestly don't wrong sloan for feeling wronged in that moment okay and why 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 should we overlook the fact that we know serena back then in particular to be a petty person Okay. Like, she can be great, she can be the goat, she can be your fave, and she can also do really kind of petty, shady things. 
that are not necessarily mm. nice that we can understand and see why she'd want to keep Sloane at a distance. But if if what Sloane is saying is to be believed, well, it's not really the best look. Okay. Are you asking for my opinion? Yes, I'm asking for your opinion. Mm-hmm. I think there's no doubt that Serena can be mean. And she may have been mean in in that instance. I didn't say mean, I said petty. Okay, but but there is there can be a mean-spirited aspect to that. Mm-hmm. And the I made you tweet, I, I do feel like was, even at the time I felt like, okay, maybe that's a little too much. Clearly, Serena and Sloane don't have to be friends. I think they can have a, a healthy respect for each other and not be friends. I don't know all that went on between them, right? I remember seeing their snaps at the Olympics, and they all seemed to be getting along on the team. Venus, Madison, Sloan, and Serena, they were interacting in a friendly way. Uh, There's no doubt that Sloan was hurt by that. Maybe she expected to come on the scene and have Serena as a mentor, and Serena wasn't willing to, to fulfill that. It seemed, based on what Sloan was saying, and if you had read the piece... Mm-hmm. She was sitting there at the pizza place with her mother and the journalist talking about it. And the mother was like, are you really going to be talking about all this stuff right now? <laughs> and Sloane was just letting loose. She was like, yes, you know what? I'm going to talk about because I'm really damn pissed about this. Well, this is what she does when she gets comfortable. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I don't know that Serena had a mentor relationship with Sloane. No, I no. don't know that Sloane perceived it to be a mentor relationship. But did she I think, want it? I don't think that's the the thing to be looking at either. Okay. I think it's how it was framed. I remember Serena being asked about it in press. I remember Sloane being asked about it in press. And Sloane, after having a cordial and friendly relationship with Serena, kind of went with it. Mm. You know, thinking like, well, yeah, why not? And then Sloane beats Serena and Serena is drawing back. Right. And Sloane can't understand that. And then wrapped up in that too is this media narrative of getting the next Serena. And is Sloane the next Serena? Mm-hmm. And at that point, too, Sloane is battling this this duality of maintaining that relationship with Serena, which Serena then distances herself from her, and then also not wanting any part of being the next Serena. And she even says in that piece, you know, like, I never even said Serena was my favorite player. I said from the start that Kim Clijsters was my favorite player. (laughs) You know, but the media ran with it. And... It's it's lazy to the extent that you're you're saying she's the next Serena because she's black as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what it boils down to. Yeah. And at twenty years old, did Sloane handle that as best she could? Absolutely not. Like <laughs> it but. probably would have been best to let that be. But there's a big but. To the extent that in that article too, she went off saying that when she was really young, she went to this practice or this tournament where the Williams sisters were, and she and her mother waited for hours for them to sign. And they came back and forth three different times, and they didn't. And then she said, from that point, I was just done. You know, mm-hmm. Kim's my favorite player anyway, like, whatever. Well, and you can see Kim all over her game. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but when you tell that story, in the immediate aftermath of that whole I made you and all that crap that went down, it doesn't necessarily paint Sloan in the best light mm-hmm. with the Williams fans. Right, And that's where I think a lot of that snowballed out of control. This is me defending Sloan now mm. as to why I'm doing that. I don't know. It was just something that as an intellectually <laughs> curious person, it's, it stuck out for me today. What's curious for me now with Sloan on the cover of Sports Illustrated, with Sloan now a Grand Slam champion, with Sloan getting press and visibility like she's never had before, 
is she now going to continue to push back and distance herself from being the next Serena? Or is she going to fall into the trappings of the notoriety and the the money and the press that engaging in that will benefit her? No, Do you no, know what I'm saying? No. Because I think now the the pushing back against being, you know, the next Serena has moved on. It's not resentment anymore. It's about I want to be the next Sloane Stevens. It's not about, oh, I just don't want to be Serena because she was nasty to me. I, she's different. She's older. She's had all these experiences since that happened. That was, what, four years ago? Mm-hmm. I, d- I think that Sloane and Serena, we don't know them. Maybe they've come to this peace between themselves. We have no idea. Serena, Serena tweeted in yes, support of both exactly. Sloane and Madison before the final. So, for me... The the analogy that I thought of immediately, and when, and when this all went down a few years ago, was Joan Rivers, who always said, so Joan Rivers was almost 80 years old and still out there writing new jokes, competing with male and female comics to get bookings, right? Like she was doing the work as an old lady. She always said when female comics came up to her and said, you're such an inspiration, it pissed her off. And she said, how dare you? I'm competing against you. Like, you're my competition. I don't care if you're my, you know, I'm your inspiration. So this is this is what I thought of with the Sloane and Serena thing. Serena is out here trying to beat these other women. Sloane beat her on a huge stage. And that stung really badly. So did she react in a way that was, I don't know, unbecoming, petty? Maybe. But... I think that they have moved on and, and we should move on as well. I think Sloan, the thing that really bugged me this weekend was hearing one of the commentators say that, you know, look, you can come from nothing and become a Grand Slam champion. And I'm thinking, um, excuse me? Are you saying that because Sloan is black? Do you, Chris Everett is who do you're you, referring do to. Do you think that she came from nothing because she's black? I mean, her father played in the NFL. Her mother was an all-American college athlete. Like, that is so offensive and racist, that assumption. And so, to me, the assumption that two black female athletes should be best friends is also offensive in a similar way. I'm, that's not what I'm getting at. Yeah. Two, two final points I want to make. I don't think that Serena is the same person she was back then. We've seen a tremendous, it's kind of demeaning to say maturity, but a shift, an evolving of Serena Williams in Mm. the last couple of years. She's embraced her role as inspiration, as mentor to young Americans, as a racial figure, as the goat, Mm -hmm. as the goat that's still playing. She's able to occupy that space with much more grace, so to speak, than she did back then. But also, it's not just about whether Sloane wants to take part in this whole next Serena business. It's about being able to navigate the media whirlwind of comparisons that's inevitable to still come her way, mm-hmm. especially if she continues to win. Do you know what I mean? Yes, and and that will come. I mean, there will be forces trying to crown her the next Williams sister. And the thing is, take take away all of the individual people involved in this. There's no reason that Sloane should be the next Williams sister or feel that she needs to be. She's Sloane Stevens. She's 
an American tennis player who's playing really well right now. So I think, you know, her reactions to those forces are sort of besides the point because basically, like, how can anyone be equipped to deal with that kind of thing, regardless of age, you know? It's just something that's never going to go away. We know how mm-hmm. the tennis media is like a dog without a bone, a dog with a bone. Not just the tennis media, but the media in general. When you win, you become a slam champion. You go and you do uh, Kelly and Michael, which she did. Mm. You go and do Seacrest, all these different people who aren't in tennis day in, day out. They're the ones who then make those bigger extrapolations as well. Mm. It's just something I'm going to be curious to see, given that it's something that she's pushed back against all along. Okay. That's all. All right. Back to the doubles. Back to doubles. So Chucky Hingis, I mean, Martina Hingis. Oh, my God. Martina Hingis won women's doubles and mixed doubles. She has 25 Grand Slam titles now. I think 13 women's doubles titles and like seven mixed. A lot. She won doubles with Letitia Chen after splitting with Sanya Mirza, Santino, that doubles grouping, mm-hmm. just before Cincinnati last year. She kind of flailed around a little bit. Played with Coco for a bit, played with a couple of other people. And now, since the Chan sisters split at the end of last year, she's taken up with Letitia and they've had an awesome year. And it's now culminated with the US Open title. Mm-hmm. And then she goes and she partners with Jamie Murray again. Jamie Murray, who she played <laughs> with at Wimbledon, yeah. to win mixed at both events. My question to you is, and it's something I posed on Twitter, and uh, I got a couple of responses. <laughs> For those two titles, Martina won $412,500 combined. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think that that's enough. (laughs) Not when Sloane Stevens and Rafa Nadal are out here cashing $3.7 million checks. There's a legitimate argument to be made that doubles is undervalued. And it's something that Venus talks about all the time. You ask Venus any day of the week, what's one change you'll make to tennis? And she'll tell you every time that people need to pay more attention to doubles. Really? Yeah. Hmm. She said that? Yeah, she has. And many people feel that way. You know, Martina Hingis is a big name. Mm-hmm. She's bringing visibility to doubles. She's out here as the best doubles player in the world. And we saw in Cincinnati that people are watching doubles. Yes. You know, we're, we aren't able to get doubles on TV a lot, so the visibility is is suppressed to an extent but when people are at tennis tournaments they are watching doubles matches more so than a lot of these mm. no-name singles matches and early round matches and right. you know i'm sure to an extent some of these doubles matches draw bigger crowds than even some men's or women's fourth round single matches on yeah. outer courts yeah right? i mean you you kind of hit it with it's not often on TV. That's the thing. It's undervalued because it doesn't bring eyeballs to TV, but it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because it's not on TV that often. And so organizers can say, well, it's not, you know, we're not selling tickets based on doubles. Uh, people are not tuning in for doubles, but they, they've kind of made their bed. You know what I mean? As far as the U.S. Open, $3.7 million for a singles winner is absurd. But the unique situation at the U.S. Open is that they like to brag about the check. That's a routine at every singles final. So 
they have to keep upping the ante with the singles purse. And I think what suffers is the other draws, right? The doubles, the mixed doubles. Not only that, but the the first and second round prize monies as well. And the qualifying prize Mm. monies in singles. There are so many ways in which the, the wealth could be spread that it's not. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Somebody said to me, oh, you know, it's for I'm not here to feel sorry about somebody winning four hundred and twelve thousand dollars. Like that's not enough. Money. No, I and mean that's that's entire, a lot of money. That's, that's more entirely money, besides the point. That's more money than we have, but it's it's about scale, right? It's yeah. about uh, proportion. And the argument that you make too that it's a lot of money for doubles. We only have that perspective because, as you said, it's a self fulfilling prophecy. If you don't put the time value the time money investment into developing doubles then it's not going to get any better it's not going to become more visible there's no reason why doubles shouldn't have a a better value in relation to singles than it does right now and you can start by rewarding people with prize money to get better players to play doubles more regularly a couple notes, the two junior winners, we have Animisova, who won the the girls' singles at the U.S. Open, and then Wu Yibing, who won mm. the boys' singles. He also won the boys' doubles as well. He's the first Chinese junior titleist in history. Really? And he becomes... Men or women? Yeah, or girls he becomes or somebody to really watch going forward. Mm-hmm. Because we, we've seen a lot of great Chinese women's players, but not a lot of great men. Is it time for the Body Surf Hall of Fame induction ceremony yet? Yes. Let's. Okay. We, we actually changed our mind on this one. Would you like to announce the winner? It's not a winner. Uh, the inductee? <laughs> we are inducting this person, a, per, a player was one of my original faves in tennis back when I started in 1994. Mm -hmm. And this person has had two separate careers on the WTA and today at the age of 46 announced her retirement, sadly after losing Love and Love to Alexandra Krunich in Japan. It seemed like this was planned (laughs) Mm -hmm. that Kimiko Date Krum started Kimiko Date Married Michael Crum, became Kimiko Date Crum, <laughs> divorced, now Kimiko Date again. Oh, I missed that part. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, she, she's calling it quits. She's been off the tour for well over a year because of a crazy injury. Decided to make it back to have this final moment on home soil, it seems. Mm-hmm. Terrible, again, that it was a love and love loss. Right. But uh, Kimiko, you are a champ. You are... A fave of ours. You provided many thrills. In your second career, you pushed Venus deep into a third set at Wimbledon. Right. She was beating women half her age. I mean, she's like you said she had two careers. I feel like she's had three or four. Mm -hmm. Like she's had big layoffs since the original comeback. She reached her first Grand Slam semifinal in 1994. Were y'all born in 1994? She was playing on the WTA tour in the late 80s. (laughs) What? Really? Yeah, she's been... Like when we were in kindergarten? She's been on tour on and off for practically 30 years. Mm -hmm. 
So think about that. Pre Nishikori, she was Japan's most successful tennis player ever, and is still obviously greatly honored and admired in Japan. She started a, a cafe, a, a pastry shop mm-hmm. that hopefully she'll be able to turn into a franchising business. We'll see some in Canada sometime soon. <laughs> yeah, they'll probably start in Vancouver and then move their way over <laughs> That's here. That's racist. Uh, no, it's just the market. <laughs> because there's a lot of Asians in no, in Vancouver? specifically Japanese. Okay. Yes, that's mm. just true. That's not racist. Okay. <laughs> Do you have anything you wanted to say about Kimiko specifically? I want to say, I, I mean, like, what can you say? It's impressive that she was still out here, but she was playing good tennis. It's not like she was just getting wild cards on a protected ranking or something. She was out here beating people who she had no business beating, playing a style of tennis that nobody plays anymore. So it'll be sad to see her go. I did want to say that uh, if you get a chance, watch Alexandra Krunich's speech after the match. Just absolute class all around. Said it was such a great honor to play Kamiko and that she was so sorry that she was the one who had to send her out of the game. And that she'd probably be crying in the locker room afterward. <laughs> I mean, Krunich would be crying. <laughs> and meanwhile, Kimiko was just there smiling and right. beaming right. while she was speaking. I mean, if you're Kimiko Date, like, how are you not proud of your career at this point? Such an inspiration to me and so many others. And while, I mean, obviously we're fans of Rafa and the Williams sisters, we haven't inducted them yet. Mm. We don't really know what the hell we're doing with this body serve Hall of Fame. We were, <laughs> I mean, those are too obvious, we were, right? We were petty with the first induction. This one is more heartfelt mm-hmm. and heartwarming. Somebody that we absolutely love and respect. Yeah. And has been a big inspiration to us as well. And uh, welcome to our Hall of Fame, Kimiko. Arigato. <laughs> a couple um, note-keeping things before we get into our final segment which will, I guess, be a see what happened was with Sharapova and more oh, bullshit. D- is it really all of that, though? <laughs> no, still, there's still some more stuff to say. All right. Rankings. Some interesting stuff with the rankings after the U.S. Open. Nadal, of course, is still number one. He has a 1,900-point lead over Federer for number two. And so year in number one is a, a distinct possibility for Rafa this mm-hmm. year. It is still very much in play, though. It is. Yeah, because you know Federer loves this part of the season Federer, as well. Federer, he did say he's going to play Paris, which I wasn't sure about. He's going to play Paris, Basel, uh, I think Shanghai. I could be wrong. But I think he's playing four more tournaments. Alexander Zverev is up to number four, a career high. Novak is down to number six. Part of a progressive slide for him for the rest right, of the year. Which he can't do much about no. at this point. Karenia Busta, he's up to number 10, cracks the top 10 for the first time in his career after making the semifinals. We hadn't mentioned mentioned him prior, mm-hmm. but congrats to him. Kevin Anderson, the finalist, he's up to number 15, a previous career high of number 10, so he's making his way back. Mm-hmm. Gael Monfils, number 36. That just does not feel right. It's crazy. In, in my spirit. He made a semifinal last year. That was a crazy... Yeah, at the that US was a, That was a semifinal against Djokovic where he did all those crazy things, right? <laughs> was that a semi? I think when it was, yeah. Oh, my God. Because remember, he played so well in the summer last year as well. Yeah. That's why he's lost all these points. Uh-huh. 
We saw him a bunch at the at the Rogers Cup in Toronto. He won DC, I think. Yes, you're right. Denis Shapovalov, he is up to number 51 after making the fourth round at the U.S. Open. What what a rise. If Sloan had not done so well, he would have been, you know, the other story of the summer. Well, they're, they're linked together as well because they have this love fest going on. <laughs> like, the funniest story I've heard in a long time is Sloan thinking she saw Dennis and his family at a restaurant and sending wine to the table, and it wasn't actually them. Note to Sloan, not all white people look alike. Also, Dennis is too young to drink wine. <laughs> <laughs> it was champagne. Okay. Muguruza is your new world number one in the WTA, mm-hmm. joining Rafa as joint Spanish number ones. That's pretty cool for España. It sure is. Felicidades. And it feels right. It, I mean, I think Muguruza is someone who will wear the mantle well. That's very coded. No, I, I don't think it is. I knew, I knew how that could be taken. Uh-huh. But, like we've said before, Mugurtha is, uh, is somebody who is pretty fearsome when she's at her best. And she's been at her best a lot recently. We will see how it, she wears that. Crown. I'm just saying it feels right based on her results. Okay. If you leave it at that, that's perfect. All right. That's what I meant. Venus is up to number five, the highest she's been ranked since January 2011. Mm-hmm. Which, in effect, is the end of year 2010. You can basically say 2010 because, yeah. you know, the year ends and then you carry that ranking into 2011. So I think it's more impressive to say since 2010. <laughs> in okay. seven years, her highest ranking in seven years. Ostapenko cracks the top 10 for the first time. She's up to number 10. Angelique Kerber down to number 14 after losing in the first round at the U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. So her horror year is now fully in her rearview mirror now. Yeah. Hopefully she can right the ship and start start building again. Because, I mean, we, we've heard and seen and ourselves, we've categorized her year as a, pretty much a colossal failure, right? And yet she's still number 14. Mm-hmm. So that is a positive yeah. to take. I mean, unfortunately, her year last year was just so incredible that there are a lot of points that have to come off. Sloane Stevens, champion at, at the U.S. Open, is up to number 17. She's jumped over 900 spots in the last month. 900. You know, no big deal. <laughs> Does that mean she's comeback player of the year? Uh, she I, has to be. Is there any competition she for that? She has to be. <laughs> Back-to-back semifinals in, what was it, Toronto and Cincinnati. Yeah. And then winning the U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. You do you, girl. That's pretty good. Serena Williams is down to number 22. She has no more points to defend the rest of the year. So this is where <laughs> she will be pretty much at the US, at the Australian Open okay. if she comes back. Okay. Meaning there are players below her who could possibly still overtake her mm-hmm. and players above her who could still lose points the rest of the year. I would say within five places, I just don't see her dropping out of the top 30. She'll be seated at the Australian so think, Open if she plays. Really? Yes, I do. Okay. I, I don't really know how all that works. Okay. So that said, if Serena doesn't come back at the Australian Open, then she will be yeah. unseated. So it'll be a protected ranking. Yes. But she won't be seated? Correct. Okay. Jennifer Brady's up to number 65. Maria Sharapova. 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 <laughs> She's up to number 103 after making the fourth round at the US Open, which I'm told 
as of right now, would be good enough to get her into the Australian Open without a goddamn wild card. Please. We assume. Just we play, assume, play one match in the fall. We assume, <laughs> unless she picks up an injury while she's signing some books, that she'll be playing <laughs> the rest of the year. So she'll be able to build on that even more. Or like if she falls off that really high stool at Regis and Kelly. Or Michael and Kelly or whatever it's <laughs> you called. You behave now. yourself. <laughs> Sad for me, a personal fave, Andrea Petkovic. She's down to 105, number mm. 105. Mm-hmm. Kai Kanepi, quarterfinalist. Surprise quarterfinalist at the US Open. She jumps 308 spots to number 110. <laughs> 308 spots. 308 That's spots. All? <laughs> Who jumps even more spots this week is Vera Zvonareva, who made the final in Dalian, which is a Chinese uh, $125,000 tournament. Mm-hmm. A tournament that's been won previously by Kristina Pliskova. Uh, she jumps 317 spots to number 306. So she's well on her way back, it seems. Well, I'm all for that. Two more... Odds and ends before we get into the the Maria business. Alicia Black, you may remember her as one half of the Black Sisters, Mm -hmm. Tornado and Hurricane Black. Yeah. They were big time newsmakers in juniors a couple years back. And lo and behold, this week, a New York Times article gets published documenting Alicia, who also is known as Tornado, her struggles, her need for a surgery to make it back to tennis, the fact that her family is struggling, she has to be giving lessons on the weekend and during the during the week to pay for rent just to put a roof over mm. her mother who has cancer and her younger younger sister's head. Yeah, so she's she's a, basically a teaching pro to help support her sister's junior career and just pay the bills. Yeah, and her career is on hold. She needs a forty thousand dollar surgery. That includes the cost of recovery and whatnot mm. and not being able to, you know, be the breadwinner or what have you. Yeah. Uh, supposedly, the surgery can be done in Florida where she's based, but it's not been done very often. And the person who is best in the field to be to be doing it is out in California. Mm. And so she doesn't want to pay for a budget surgery that she doesn't know yeah. what's going to... Which, I mean, as a professional athlete, this is a step that you need to be taking you you can't make those kind of oh, walmart of decisions mm-hmm. to be discount shopping for your surgeon yeah yeah and, and so of she, course she has private health insurance which will not cover it mm-hmm. so i mean it's just terrible shit it's the total moral failure of the american healthcare system and the injustice of it so anyway she started a gofundme or kickstarter Whatever. We've been sharing it on Twitter. If you're able, and not everyone is able to give, please do so. But if not, just share it. Kick it around Tennis Twitter. Tennis Twitter is so generous and so supportive. So I hope she gets to her goal. Tom Rinaldi. I have here hashtag sashay away. (laughs) He's interviewing... All of a sudden, Tom Rinaldi is doing tennis. How did he get the job, like the encore job? Why is he there? Oh, why? What? What else does he do? He's done many, many, many sports. Oh, I only know before. him from tennis. Really? Well, I mean, I don't watch other sports. <laughs> you mean from tennis this year? No, I mean like heard he's been at the U.S. Open for a long time. Oh, he hasn't has? he? 
I don't know. I just noticed him for the first time this year in such a large presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was definitely an outsized presence. I've seen him before doing those those color commentary kind of vignettes. Yes. Like he's done yes, those yes, before. Because yes. I recognize his voice. Yes. Yeah. But now he's on court interviewing winners and doing the women's final interview mm-hmm. with Sloan and Madison. And mind you, if I am Tom Rinaldi, and in that semifinal, I said to Madison Keys as she was standing right beside me and announced to the crowd, Sloan Stevens into the US <laughs> Open final. And Madison Keys just hangs her head and walks away. But she didn't really indicate that she knew it. Like, it was a really professional response. Yeah. But that's besides the point. Of course, The point, yeah. it was a colossal fuck Oh, yeah. Like, you have three black women in the semifinals, mm. and it's that difficult it's to like, tell them apart. Sorry, which black girl are you again? Can you remind me? And so we know, because Chris McKendry did the men's final, mm-hmm. that Tom didn't have to do the women's final. After that big fuck-up, they could have just said, you know what, Tom? You go interview Rafa after he wins, and Chris, you go do the woman, mm-hmm. right? Because we don't need that situation again. Yeah. And there he is with Madison and Sloan right. in the final. And luckily, Sloan did the work for him. I mean, she gave an emotional, just a wonderful interview. And so did Madison. But uh, I I actually really liked Chris McHendry. I know people were joking that she was speaking very slowly. And she was. Well, she was. But Bad Toss from Twitter pointed out that it was perfect for the venue because it's very echoey. And her husband's a sound engineer, by the way. That's how mm. she these things occur to her. So that was a good point that I didn't even think of. But I just, honestly, I like Chris McEndry because she's a pro. You need a broadcaster in the booth at all times. Even if her te- tennis knowledge doesn't run deep, you just need a professional. And that's what she is. She did a good job. I agree to the extent that it was still off-putting watching it in real time. It just came <laughs> off as weird. I'm not going to apologize for that. She, her questions were good. She did a good job. But the combination of the slowness, the kind of loopy smile that she had on mm, her face, it, was just, okay. it just seemed a little bit... I mean, she looked great. She did, but it looked mm. a bit drug-induced. That's all. Fair enough. I mean, you know, maybe... All of us just need something to get through. Like, <laughs> no judgment. She, I will say, her professionalism shone through when both Rafa and Kevin kind of took over the mic and probably answered a lot of the questions that she had prepared. Mm-hmm. And she reacted without missing a beat. That's why you need a professional broadcaster there. And still followed up with questions and not, that were not touched upon yes. in their responses. And yes. not Dick Enberg, who steals the mic away from Del Potro and says, sorry... You can't talk in Spanish, even though you won the, this huge title. Oh, my God. I'm crushing up my agenda right now. What? Nobody wants I'm to I'm making the noise. <laughs> Do you hear it? It's been crushed. Yeah, everyone's turning down their speakers right I'm, now. I just threw it on the ground. I am now fully unencumbered for us to talk about this Maria shit now. Mm-hmm. My spirit is not unencumbered. It's very much cumbered. We, it seems like every week we say, oh, we're not going to be talking about Maria anymore. We're so done with this. And then some fresh bullshit happens, right? We knew that Unstoppable was coming out. 
I told y'all. I told y'all about the chapter. We knew about the that Serena the chapter, chapter was coming. And, you know, Max, I don't know his tw- Twitter handle, but Max. MG the f- loves tennis. Yeah, the 15-year-old in mm. Canada. Uh, I've met him a couple times. He got the book early in Canada because it was the release dates are different. Really? It is. It came out in Canada it first? It came out in Canada first. So he oh, was taking snaps. I thought he was like in the loop or something. No, he took snaps of certain segments of the book, chapters, whatever, mm. put them on Twitter. And there were all these group, <laughs> these people who were showing their asses coming for this kid on Twitter, really. It's like, honestly, oh, yeah. Like if you don't want to read it, don't read it. If you feel offended by this, block him. I just don't understand. Twitter, Twitter has several mechanisms for that, if you're not aware. There were a couple of people who, let's be frank, it wasn't surprising that they handled this situation in this wow, manner. You're really going you're really going down that road right now? Whatever. I mean, I don't care. <laughs> what do I care? I mean, it's just not a good look. I mean, what? Whatever. Anyway, that's not really what we're the here The book to is talk out. About. So anyway, that was part of how this Maria stuff became circulated. Mm-hmm. Of course people are going to get the book. There's also press people who get the book ahead of time and do reviews. And and post excerpts Mm -hmm. or whatever. And one of the things that came to pass was Maria talking about Serena in the Serena chapter. And the first time she saw her or played her, I think at Wimbledon in 2004, Talking about her thick arms and her thick thighs and her thick butt and her thick nose and her she didn't thick say, hair. She did not say the nose and the hair. Come on. Let, it was bad, but it could have been worse. Point. She describes Serena as an ogre in, in, they, in essence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she being this dainty, innocent little girl. Oh my goodness. No, in all seriousness, this is what uh, has pissed a lot of people off and has really taken off even in mainstream media that rarely pays attention to this kind of stuff. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on Sharapova because she did not win the U.S. Open. She did not get to the quarterfinals. and She did not break the top 100. No, and I I don't know if it's worth our breath. And I think that a lot of people are doing a lot of great work in exposing and what this sort of language means. But what needs to be said is that this is a historical project a historical American project to make black women seem like monsters, mm-hmm. seem unhuman, animalistic. And this is, it's just part of this history, a way of positioning Sharapova as a white, pretty, skinny woman, as innocent and as intimidated by a black woman who is somehow more than human and less than human in her physicality. And I will not stand for it. I'm pissed off. Which then It's racist. It, it posits in opposition Sharapova as a damsel in distress, the one who's constantly in danger, in fear of her life. She's in fear of her tennis life mm. on court because this this beast is coming to just stomp all over her. And somehow... She's able to rise above it and win. I don't know how she did it right. in the face of all those that. two times. <laughs> oh, and, and yes, we know that there is a long history of this dating back 
in professional sport writing and in American culture to the 19th century in popular discourse. To to slavery. Yes, to it's, the, it starts there. The 17th century. But in terms you know? of how this translates to sport, mm. right? And this is not new. By any measure, this is not new. And to say that that's not her intent, for her to say that's not her intent, it's neither here that's, nor there. That does not it's matter. It's the same reason why... For example, a body is the, the body image business of the New York Times article, like the intent of that didn't matter. Mm-hmm. The intent of someone's racism doesn't matter. Right? Right. Like the business is to be aware of why you should or shouldn't be doing this thing. And Maria didn't just write this thing. Well, first she didn't write it by herself. Right. But she and her ghost editor, or whatever, ghost writer, didn't just write it and then sent it to UPS and printed it and circulated all over Mm. the world. Like there was an editor. It went through many meetings. It went through all these things. Like this is not an accident. Of course. It's one of two things. Either it was totally missed by everybody as something that could be problematic, which I find hard to believe. The missed by what, what was missed? I mean, the language they, but they know it's going to sell. That's my point. That's all that matters. That's it. The second point is, that it was seen and left in intentionally because this is this is what she is. Right. At the heart of it too, right? She's somebody who is there to sell product. And this type of writing, this salacious writing, <laughs> mm. is left in to then elicit this kind of response to then sell the book. Well, of course, we're talking about the book, mm-hmm. right? It, uh, you know, what really pisses me off is the fact that she would bring up the potentiality of being friends with Serena. And she said, on paper, we should be friends. We've experienced a lot of the same things. We have things in common. Not many people in history have, have reached the heights that we have. And there is, there's some truth to that, Mm -hmm. but she also says we will likely never be friends. And what's implied in that is that that is mean that, evil bitch will never allow well, us. Well, of course. That either that there's, there's some imaginary force preventing us from being friends, even though I want it to happen. Or it's Serena. Regardless. <laughs> the, the idea that Maria desires to be friends is laughable because she would never write about her in that way. If she wanted that to come to pass after their careers are over. Exactly. And she's also said in some of the excerpts that we've seen that she's actively from a junior level, from a child, gone out of her way to not befriend tennis players. Right. That's part of her MO to develop this persona as somebody Mm -hmm. who is unavailable to other tennis players to maintain that aura of fear and intimidation. Which is her prerogative, of course. But this is that duality that we're seeing Mm -hmm. with her. This, This complete bullshit where you say one thing and we know the opposite to be true. Mm-hmm. I was amused by the obsession with Venus and Serena from a very young age. Yeah. And it can only be called an obsession. Mm-hmm. The The fact that Yuri put her in a shed 
to watch the Williams sisters practice <laughs> because she so they couldn't be seen like at that time like anyone would have cared who this little skinny blonde girl is nobody knew who she was what if Serena Venus saw her she would just be part of the sea of onlookers right. at that time when they were children right like oh my god in 2004 Serena arrives on center court Wimbledon and it's like oh my god that's the girl who was watching me <laughs> When I was in Braden, when I was ten years old, nineteen ninety-four. Like, if only I hadn't allowed her to watch me that day, (laughs) I wouldn't have lost this match. (laughs) Oh my god! And then she talks about at the Wimbledon ball. She says, "I have to beat them." Yeah, at every every turn, every time she spotted them at the Wimbledon ball, she describes everybody standing to give uh, Serena the ovation. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Is like, no, you are fucking rude. Right? Like, this is not some <laughs> suspense or drama yeah. that you're adding to the prose. That's just real fucking disrespectful. I mean, we've talked about this before as well. The whole idea, the nerve, the nerve. And please, there's a Dear Maria letter that was written by Lovey. Mm-hmm. I think her name is Awesomely Lovey on Twitter. Yeah. And you can, I think it's just at L-U-V-V-Y or something like that, or L-U-V-V-I-E. She wrote something to Maria, and it was, one, it was hilarious. Two, it, it expresses so much of what so many of us feel. There are a lot of parts that maybe go too far. Okay. You know, but whatever. Thank you, Lovey, for giving us this one little bit where she references Sharpova's Beckery and a caucasity because <laughs> we talked about the title of this book that is the utmost ridiculousness unstoppable mm-hmm. my life so far when in fact you dedicate an entire chapter to serena williams whom you have not beaten since 2004 17 straight losses mm-hmm. you are 2 and 19 you are by definition very stoppable by serena mm-hmm. williams but to work and undercut that truth, you then talk about all the ways in which you are not responsible for you being stoppable by Serena Williams. Mm, that sounds so familiar. Right? Doesn't it? You say that Serena, I know for a fact that the reason why Serena resolved to never lose to me again, because she was there in the locker room heaving, and I mean, it was a type of Dry heaving, guttural, wailing, guttural, guttural sobs. Like, you know, your life is over, kind of screaming, sobbing. But she knew I was there and she knew that I heard her and she would never let that go. And that's why 17 other times mm-hmm. that I lost to she's, her. She's summoned Jehovah to beat you. Right. It can't be that she's better. Not that's, that. That's not a possibility, right? Not the fact that you tried your damnedest to win but couldn't. Mm. Right. If indeed that did happen in the locker room, how dare you reveal that right? about another player? Somebody tweeted, you know, if I if I were to hear another woman in that private moment, that would go with go to me with my grave. Mm-hmm. Right? That's yeah. real fucking rude. To be out here in this book, selling that book for money and throwing Serena's right. private moment under the bus. But, you know, but if, if you're not friends after your careers, it's Serena's fault, mm-hmm. obviously, yeah. after all this. So, you know what? Listen, you got me all worked up, girl. And before I say something I regret, I'm going to just exit. You're going to exit? Yeah. I'm just going to take myself out of this conversation. This is a tip. What I want, what I really, really want people 
to take from this discussion, though, is that regardless of intent, that this this construction has to be situated in a history of racism in this country, of pitting white women and black women against each other. And it's just, it's incredibly frustrating. And I don't know that Maria, as an immigrant, even understands what she's doing. But I just will not stand for the continued dehumanization of black women. It just really pisses me off. And that's why I do not want to give assent to this book. And I will pirate it if necessary. <laughs> if necessary. <laughs> so that's all I have to say about that. I've been a little bit long-winded. This is the end of the episode. Congrats to Rafa. Congrats to Sloan. Congrats to Kimiko on a wonderful career. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is at the body serve on Twitter. You can find other body serve related works <laughs> on thebodyserve.com, specifically the body serve diary, of which there's new content for you to peruse. Please give us a review on iTunes. Those are always welcomed. Till next time.